This morning, I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to the book of Job in the 42nd chapter. And if you'd like to use your pew Bibles, that would be page 446. But this is Job chapter 42, the last chapter of Job. The page that follows that is the beginning of the book of Psalms, Job chapter 42. The Lord has shown Job marvels from his creation. God has shown Job in very practical terms of the natural elements and the animals that he's created, just how wise he is and how great his understanding is. And beginning in chapter 42, verse 1, then this is what we read. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Then he quotes what God had asked him earlier. You see it in in a single quote in your text. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? (laughs) Therefore I've uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. (laughs) I had heard of you by the hearing of your ear. But now my eyes see you and therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Well, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. And now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job. And offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. And so Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the 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 Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had come or who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought about him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep. In the beginning he had seven. 6,000 camels, not 3,000. 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of his first daughter Jemima. And the second, Keziah. And the name of the third, Karen Hapuch. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his daughters, I'm sorry, and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Well, let's pray together, shall we? 
Father, I ask you now that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, I think the uh, way I want to re- begin this sermon is by reminding you of the final round of sermons I began preaching in May, and this is part of that round, and I entitled this series, Things That You Will Never Regret. Do you remember that? Things You Will Never Regret. And these messages that I've been preaching on the book of Job, these five messages, they fall under that same theme of things that you will never regret. I think that Job underscores especially one of the most essential things that you will never regret. Though you will be tested and tempted a thousand, thousand different ways to let go of it. But this is what you'll never regret. Holding on to your confidence in God. Holding on to your confidence in God. And when I say holding on to your confidence in God, I mean confidence that he is worthy of your love. He's worthy of your loyalty. And he is worthy of your trust. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, the Christians were struggling with hardships also, somewhat like Job. In fact, really, in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, what the believers are struggling with are the hardships being imposed on them by persecution. And in a sense, Job also was being persecuted, though directly by Satan, not through other people, at least not intentionally, and Job didn't know that he was being persecuted, but, uh, but it's very similar. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, this is what we read, again, talking to Christians in the New Testament under persecution, for you had compassion on those in prison. You know, you visited those people, even though it was dangerous for you. You showed the compassion. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding possession. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. You will never regret holding on to your confidence in God. I think this is a great takeaway from the book of Job. And to set that up for you to understand and to to think with me, at least the way I was thinking on this, I think it's a great takeaway. Because this book of Job does not end with God's revelation of his amazing wisdom and understanding seen in the cosmos and in the creatures. That's not how it ends. It does not end with Job humbling himself and confessing that he had thought far too little of God. He had far too small a view or understanding of God. It doesn't, it doesn't even end with Job at last able to rest in the assurances that God's purposes will prevail. Even that is not how the book of Job ends. The book of Job's ends with Job's restoration. God restores Job. God not only forgives him, but he vindicates Job. He honors Job. He calls Job my servant four times. He appoints Job intercessor over his three friends turned accusers. And he compels those three 
to humble themselves before this man whose misery they had compounded. These three who felt that they were far more righteous than Job was. The Lord's forgiveness then of those three men is forgiveness in answer to Job's prayer for them, the intercessor's prayer for them after the sacrifice has been offered for sin, for them. A very costly sacrifice, a royal sacrifice, all those oxen, all those rams. And then he more than restores Job. To Job, he restores more than all of the losses that he suffered. So when we come to the end of Job, God restores Job. Now in saying that, I don't mean to gloss, to gloss over Job's confession and the importance of that confession. In verse 2 of our chapter, he speaks to the Lord. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He has learned this. God has shown this to him. And he adds, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. So Job has come to this point of being convinced, convinced, not just knowing in his head, so to speak, but truly convinced beyond a doubt that God's purposes and that God's ways are wonderfully beyond him, wonderfully beyond him. And that as a finite and as a mortal creature, he cannot hope to discover them, he cannot change them, And he certainly is in no position to judge them or to condemn them. What he can do is rest content in who God is. Merciful, gracious, all wise. But my point is, not to make light of that, but my point is to underscore that that is not the end of Job, as important as it is. The end of the book extends this lesson that Job learned to Job himself. Job realized this is true based on the revelation God had given him, the cosmos, of the creatures. But the end of the book shows, in fact, how this truth about God worked out in the life of this man who held on to his confidence in God. Because no purpose of God can be thwarted. Because he works all things after the counsel of his will. The end is far better than the beginning for Job. The end is far better than the beginning for you. For all those who trust the Lord. Far, far better. And this is why the Bible so often describes the end for believers with this very wonderful word, a very personal word, and that word is salvation. That's a word we are to take to ourselves. The end is our salvation. That's our end. This end is also described in Scripture as the faithful believer's reward. 
which does not mean a paycheck, something earned, which is not a bonus, but the idea of calling our end a reward speaks again very personally to us as a gift conveying honor from God to us. There will be justice. There will be mercy. And the questions that we've had will be answered to our deep, worshipful satisfaction. Now, in Job's case, this point is made in earthly terms, in terms of Job's brothers, his sisters, his friends, welcoming and comforting him, in terms of his material losses being doubly replaced, in terms of seven sons and three stunning daughters being, married to him, uh, being born to him, and in terms of a long and blessed life. These are all earthly things. And I want to pause to say to you, don't begrudge this kind of writing. Don't, don't begrudge this description and this account presented in this way. Don't begrudge the fact that Job's restoration is portrayed in this way under these earthly symbols. I would just remind you that this is revelation. Job is revelation and fulfillment under the Old Testament. It is revelation and fulfillment in an early period of revelation involving a man who is not of Israel, schooled by God in lessons of the creation, not his law. This was a revelation in a period when truth was represented symbolically so often in things of this life, in material things. But really, they have a heavenward application, right? Truth was foreshadowed. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing in the book of Job. Because God can do all things according to his purpose. No purpose of his can be thwarted. So the book of Job doesn't just conclude with the realization that this is so, but with the demonstration that it is so in Job's case. And in fact, this is affirmed wherever we turn to wisdom in the Bible. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 8, this is what we read. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Or I could quote the wisdom of the New Testament, the book of James, which he drew which James was drawing directly from Job, these very last verses of Job, when he wrote, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. They held on to their confidence. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And he's speaking in relation to Job. And he's saying this is who God is. He does not change. The question isn't whether you're Job or not Job. The the question is whether God is God or not God. And he is. Do not, do not let go of your confidence. Now we are in a much stronger position than Job was. The Old Testament assurances have been made far stronger to us in Christ. They're much clearer, more profoundly confirmed. And I want to just underscore that what we see here is how, in fact, Job foreshadows Jesus. Job foreshadows 
Christ in a profound way. And I hope you can see it. And I'm going to take you through it with me this morning. Now Jesus is God's preeminent demonstration to us that we will never, never regret holding on to our confidence in God as Jesus did, as Jesus held on to his confidence in God. And why did he do that? He did that for us. He did that for us. As Christ suffered the loss of everything, as he was being turned over, unlike Job, to death, as he was being nailed to the cross, the Son of God was holding on to his confidence in the Father. And as God had come to Job in a whirlwind, the Gospels testify how through this ordeal, as Christ held on, angel, an angel from heaven came to strengthen him in Gethsemane. And perhaps we hear in Christ an echo of Job's complaint When Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And honestly, we are are Jesus's Eliphaz. We are Jesus's Bildad. We are his Zophar. So ready in our flesh to doubt, so ready in our flesh to question, so ready to think mean things about Christ. And yes, it is our flesh I understand that. It is our sin. I know that. But doesn't that mean it is us? That it is us. Our faith. Our faith means struggle. To believe in Christ, to trust in him, means that we will struggle. And we struggle against our flesh And then the world and the devil gets thrown in on top of that. Is that not true? It is true. But such suffering as Jesus endured, such abuse as he suffered, so often it is deemed as reason enough to dismiss him honestly as God's servant, let alone being God's son. I mean, how could God permit him to be abused, so abused if he's so worthy of our worship? I mean, Job is a type of Christ. I mean, no one would comfort Christ when Judas betrayed him, when Peter fled from him, when his apostles abandoned him. He was given over to evil. God's purpose, too wonderful for anyone to know, was being accomplished. He was atoning for our sin on the cross. He was becoming sin for us. He was accomplishing God's wisdom and his purpose to redeem us from the power of evil and from the death we deserve. And so consider then the end. What then of the end of this Jesus who held on to his confidence in God? This Jesus who was brought most low Well, God, you know, he raised him from the dead. God received him bodily into heaven. God highly exalted him, so he's now seated at God's right hand, his name above every, every name. And so we, who have offended and have dishonored him, must come to him in humility, humility. 
and present ourselves to him and to ask him to apply his sacrifice to us and to intercede for us with God in heaven. And by faith, we come. And by faith, we know he does receive us. He applies his blood to us. He does forgive us. He does intercede for us, just as Job did for Bildad and Eliphaz and Zophar. And he does it all for the sake of our salvation to the end that is far better for us than our beginning. You'll never regret holding on to your confidence in God. Jesus isn't just God's example to show that this is true. Jesus is God's assurance that it is true for us. Jesus is more than God's promise to us. It is God's promise kept for us. Our salvation, the end, has been secured. It is not in doubt. Peter said it is reserved in heaven for you. And so Paul wrote, I am convinced. Just like Job, now I know. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is not only God's promise made, it is, he is God's promise kept for us. And given that this is your end, that the end is for you salvation and reward, what do we know about the meantime? What do we know about today? What do you know about your life this very moment? What do we know in the way Job meant when he said, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted? Again, from Paul, we know, we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. We know that. Because our end is so much greater than our beginning. The true end that the Lord has for you is far greater than 4,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. You know and I know it is called heaven. It is described in relation to Christ's return as the new heavens and a new earth. But until then... God promises to be for us what he promised to be for Abraham, what he proved to be for Job. He is our shield. He will cause all things to work together for good for us who love him 
and are called according to purpose. And he will be, he will be our very great reward. Nothing is able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. The great message, it's a great message of Job. You will never regret holding on to your confidence. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you so much for this portion of your word. And I pray that you'd help us apply it to our hearts. We see Jesus in the scriptures, certainly as our savior. But he saved us in such a way as to be our example as well. Of endurance, of confidence in you, of obeying and following you of honoring you. And Lord, at every point where Jesus needs, needed your support, your support was there. And sometimes it could even be seen or plainly recognized as recounted later in the visitations of the angels. And so it is with us, Lord. You are faithful to us. Forgive us where we doubt you. I know you do. But help us not doubt you. Give us your Holy Spirit that we would not doubt you. Write the words of this book of Job in our hearts. Write the words of Paul across our consciences and our wills. Impress it upon us. And Lord, help us remember all the times we have seen this to be so in our lives and in the lives of others. Lord, you are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And because you do not change, our confidence in you could not be better placed. We love you, Lord. Through Christ we pray, amen.